Hi, and welcome to our interview with this year's Emmy-nominated film editor, Michelle Tesoro. Michelle's the editor of the critically acclaimed series, The Queen's Gambit, which has been nominated for an incredible 18 Emmy Awards. If you haven't seen it yet, you really need to check it out. In this talk, we do a deep dive into Michelle's working process and her experience on the series. She explains specific techniques used, and you'll learn terms like crossboarding or checkerboarding, a rolling mix, working remotely both on an incredibly long shoot and afterwards, and of course, how the COVID pandemic affected the cutting process. So if your goal is to become a professional editor, the wisdom and know-how Michelle shares here will be a masterclass in editing at the highest levels. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Michelle. Uh, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Alrighty, so I want to start off by asking you, how did you get started in editing? Well, uh, I did end up going to film school. Uh, so I had a couple of film classes when I was um, in high school, actually, at uh, Columbia College Chicago, which sort of wet my appetite for, for filmmaking. I had been like a theater nerd when I was younger, you know, backstage crew, stage manager, set construction, stuff like that. And, you know, I loved movies and I was at the time Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and um, some Pal Hartley movies were out and that sort of made me think of film in a different way. And, you know, fast forward a couple of years, I uh, attended um, NYU, uh, Tisch School of the Arts and all those places you, you can kind of dabble with the different crafts and see what you're good at. And um, it was just the thing that I thought I was better at. <laughs> and um, I like the idea of really having control over how the story is told. And I really didn't like getting up and having to answer a lot of questions for a lot of people, which is how I explain why I didn't want to become a director to people. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I just, I like the feel of the editing room and, you know, I had a, an editing class, uh, that we got to meet a lot of working editors and I just thought, they were so great and, you know, it was just cool. So that's how I got cool. into editing. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about The Queen's Gambit. How did you connect with Scott Frank uh, on the show? I, I think you worked with him on a previous show, right? I did. So we connected on a pilot that didn't go to air called Hoke. It was based on some mystery novels of, on a character ba uh, called Hoke Mosley. And we did that pilot for effects that was back in 2014. And then I think after that didn't get picked up and it didn't go, you know, he had since moved from Pasadena to New York and I didn't hear from him for, you know, a year and a half or something, but he told me that, you know, when something would come up, he would call me again in 2016, in the spring of 2016, he reached out to me and, and asked if I was available to do Godless. And I distinctly remember him saying, you know, it's a long one and I'm going to direct all of them. I don't know if I can do it, but I'm going to try. And I said, okay, well, you know, is it something like, do you want to put it together an editing team? Do you, what would you like to do? And he's like, well, first of all, we're going to try to do post in New York. So that would be the number one thing um, I would ask you, ask of you is to build your, build a team in New York and come out to New York. So I know it's a big ask wow. and I don't know if 
I understand if you don't want to do it. And he said, but I think, you know, I think I don't really want to work with a bunch of editors. I think, you know, I just want you to do it. And since I'm doing it all, you're going to suffer with me. So, um, and I, you know, he really wanted to keep the team small. And so I was like, "Uh, okay, let me think about that. And, you know, I wasn't doing very much. So (laughs) I figured why not? And yeah, that's, that was the big project that we did together prior to Queen's Gambit. And Queen's Gambit, um, in terms of workflow and how we did things, was just a better re- reiteration of what we did on Godless. So you were comfortable working with Scott, having worked with him on that first show. I mean, it's really nice when you work with a, the same director over and over. You sort of develop that uh, that shorthand... shorthand and trust. And so it's really nice, you know, that he asked you back the second time. That's, that's always a great feeling. So tell me a little bit, you know, you can go in depth, like in terms of the collaboration on Queen's Gambit, he was on the set and shooting seven episodes. I mean, usually they get a break and get to come in and look at an episode. How how did that whole workflow go? Basically what they did um, for both shows, they did the same thing as they cross-boarded what began as six episodes. And that is the same for Godless. It was six scripts and they just cross-boarded across, you know, to accommodate locations and actors availabilities and to, to do everything in, under a certain kind of schedule. So it was basically, you know, one long Lawrence of Arabia shoot, you know, like Godless was 120 days, I believe in total. And the Queen's Gambit was about 82 days. So the dailies just keep coming in and you're just shooting it like it's one long movie. But having said that, in order to maximize uh, the time that we had the crew and the sets, um, it was really imperative to have Scott see these scenes in whatever shape I had them. So as soon as I would get the footage and we're able to cut something rough together. We did send them to him on pics so that he could he could review it, just see how it was coming together. Um, usually we would have a, a conversations about um, what he shot that day, you know, if he had any ideas that he wanted to kind of relay. But, you know, a lot of that information, he really utilized the script supervisor to say, um, so this is how I would you know, I, I would like to use this setup for the opening or the end or something like that. Or So there was a lot of communication during shoot, during principal photography, and, and also us feeding him cuts so that he could see how things were shaping up and, um, and so that we can get enough coverage before they would leave a location or before they shut down production, you know, period, so that... Um, we got the things that we needed um, and there wouldn't be anything, hopefully, that we could help um, that we, we would need to shoot or pick up later. Nice, nice. That's really interesting. I mean, I've never worked on anything like that that was checkerboarded. So, yeah. um, wow. So you were just, you know, <laughs> knocking out scenes, kind of like, I guess, having to organize this is for episode one, this is for episode five, et cetera, et yes. cetera. That's really, right. really interesting. And I guess maybe that's more the way certain things are being done these days, maybe at Netflix or um, just the nature yeah. of the beast. I think a lot of um, shows and this sort of 
I started doing this on House of Cards. They um, were cross-boarding two episodes at a time. And usually those episodes that were cross-boarded were shot by the same director. So, you know, they would, and, and usually they were consecutive, right? So it would be, I think Fincher did one and two. Um, I forgot, oh, Jamie. Jamie did three and four. And then Carl, uh, no, sorry, Joel, Joel Schumacher did five and six, may he rest in peace. He was so funny, fun to work with. And so, yeah, that was the first time I experienced cross-boarding on myself. And and I think it seems like more of the industry is doing that, but this was the first, actually in Godless, that was the first time they were doing all of them. And I was like, oh my gosh, wow. that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> Yeah. And that was a super long schedule. Uh, I had talked to Simon yeah. Smith about Chernobyl and he told me, you know, something like a hundred day schedule on that show. And I was yeah. just like, wow, that is really exhausting. I mean, yeah. how do you, how do you like keep your stamina up? What do you, what do you, I mean, that's a you long run of dailies. It. <laughs> it is. It's a lot. I used to call, yeah, when I was in Godless, I was like, God, oh, this is like Lawrence of Arabia. Cause I think Lawrence of Arabia shot something like something in the tri triple digits um, yeah. of, of dailies, but it was across a long period of time. Yeah, I just, you keep your head down, you don't think about it, just take it day by day, because every day is a surprise. You don't know necessarily how much footage might be coming in. Um, on Queen's Gavit, it was a little bit more controlled. We didn't have huge like battle sequences like on Godless. There, were, there was a period of time where they were not only shooting main unit, but they have a splinter unit and I was getting also, so it was double dailies. Like every day it was like four or five hours of daily, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah. I just think uh, you just keep moving forward and you have a, you really have to have a good team um, in terms of assistant editors who um, are more at the top of the game where they can do the assistant editing part in their sleep, yet they want to do more. Like maybe they'll assemble, maybe not, maybe that, you know, just so it doesn't seem so overwhelming because you don't have any time to sort of learn on something like that. You know, learn Absolutely. how to be an assistant editor. Yeah, no, in no way, shape or form no. do you want to learn on a show like that. Wow. So that's no. really cool. So I read that Netflix wanted to be really accurate about the, the chess sequences and the moves and things like that. Uh, are you a chess player? No, I'm terrible at it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I'm not, I mean, I know how, how it works and I know the rules. Um, but I am not a good chess player. I thought I would be, but no, 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 it's, <laughs> it's too complicated. Um, and I didn't have time to actually learn like what will someone who's played since they were 10 or something, but you know, a lot of the chess, uh, and the sequences that they did for the chess, um, was created by our chess consultant, Bruce Pandolfini, who also was the chess consultant on the book, uh, The Queen's Gambit for Walter Tevis, and obviously is is the person who Ben Kingsley plays in Searching for Bobby Fischer. He is like the ultimate mm. person who who teaches ultimate grandmasters. <laughs> and they made a Bible between, and I, I, I know um, Gary Kasparov, grandmaster, also helped with coming up with the match uh, that plays in the finale. But all the little games that they play throughout, even 
what Benny and Beth are playing in the bug, you know, when they're traveling, like all that was, was decided upon by Bruce. Now, when, when Scott wrote um, the scripts, like there were things that I, I think they worked with him while he was writing on the script, but there were some, some games that you only see visually, you may not, you know, they might, may not reference them um, in the dialogue or anything like that, but those were also created by the chess consultants. So yeah, they, there was lots of consultants on and all they had to do is make sure that what was on screen was what they had intended. Right. So basically you wouldn't get anything that was wrong or you were, uh, maybe the no. script soup indicated things that yes. were... Correct. Because there were some times if they had forgotten to move a piece or they had to reset and they had to reset the board, things like that. If something was out of place, there was a, either a note about it or we were able to check that later and either remove a pawn or something like that or change change it but that happened rarely where we were fixing a mistake but there's maybe only one time where something was in the wrong place and they only had coverage once i believe that was at the end of episode two during the um first kentucky state game her first match with beltic and and they caught that and i was told which take you know, which one had the right moves towards the end. So <laughs> so the chess matches were uh, like uncharacteristically exciting, in my opinion, at least. Were there any discussions on how you were going to uh, accomplish that editorially? Um, I mean, I think the biggest overall message Scott wanted to get through to me is that it's about the drama. And I think as he started shooting, um, more and more, he was more convinced that the less of it we put on screen, the better. Um, and because I think in the beginning and a lot of the stuff that was shot at the beginning of photography was in Methuen. So a lot of those, um, the scenes with young Beth learning how to play chess, you know, they would shoot in the entire match and we didn't need a lot of that. We ended up really paring those down to their bare essentials. And I think as he shot, he realized, okay, well, how do I want this to be different now? Okay, I'm only gonna shoot their faces here and only focus on this move that I, you know, or the end game or something like that. So right. it got a little bit more precise as, as we got along. You know, it was always on everybody's mind, how do we make this one different from the last one? You know, sure. so just being conscious of the task at hand, you know, made us try to make everything exciting and different because we were so worried that no one would want to watch it. So, <laughs> well, I think you guys did a great job. And, uh, you know, I found myself interested in in, in every match. I, I mean, you know, for example, like the speed chess and then, you know, just all the different ways that that you guys kind of showed playing chess, you know, just made it really interesting. Yes. Um, I mean, the speed chess is funny because, you know, you know, we had, I mean, the actors were very good um, in how they learned how to how to touch the pieces. And I think the two other gentlemen that were in the speed chess, you know, in Benny's apartment, or one was actually placed chess competitively. So a lot of them had the feels and stuff. But I, they also did employ some hand doubles just to get the speed right. And then on top of that, you know, just to make it exaggerated, because I remember 
you know, we showed our friends and family and I showed a couple of editors, which was always like nerve wracking because they're your toughest critics. And, and one of the editors was like, it didn't seem fast enough for what I think speech chess might be. So I was like, oh boy. So I had to take out, I mean, I did a pass through that where like, I was like, okay, how much faster can I make this? And then what parts of that speech just can you slow down? And so there's, there's a lot of cuts there that nobody can see. <laughs> But, you know, to go with the music and to go with with the expectations of what a non-player might think speed chess would be or blitz or something like that. Um, sure, you know, sure. Well, you had me. So, I mean, I was <laughs> very impressed. And I didn't see any of those little cuts. So good job. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so what were some of your other creative challenges besides the chess? Um, I think, you know, to keep the story going. I mean, there was so much story and uh, it's hard to know, you know, how much of it you can keep playing. I think the, the biggest challenge in terms of which episodes were maybe hardest was probably episode one. It's always the hardest on a lot of shows because you're setting it up. You have to sell the story um, for the rest of it. And yeah, I, I, we always felt once we got into episode two that, you know, you were kept, people were kind of in it. Um, so, you know, the storytelling in episode one was sort of the challenge of how do you get through, you know, establishing everything, but making it, making the pace feel as such that you're, you're really whisking people along, you know? Uh, so that was, that was our first challenge. And I think the second challenge, I guess somewhere in the middle, I mean, you know what, honestly, that's probably the overall challenge was, was to keep the pace going throughout the episodes. And, and I remember reading the scripts and I said to Scott that, you know, these feel like they go fast. Is that how you, how you feel like about them? Like cause the scenes are kind of like every scene is a part of a sequence that, that are just beats. Like there are certain, like for lack of a better explanation, they, they feel like montages. So montages mm -hmm. between major sequences. So, um, and he said that, you know, it should feel in the end, it should feel as fast as those scripts read. So gotcha. I was trying to keep that in mind. Um, how are you on time uh, per episode? Were you pretty close to where you wanted to be? Was there, um, were you long in any? Did you have to like lose a lot of, a lot of material in any particular episode? Yes. Um, Boy, yeah, you, you know, there's so much good material. <laughs> we always have this issue of like, how long, you know, how long is it? I think episode one initially ended up being an hour at the assembly. And this is with Scott's notes was like an hour and 50 minutes. And we had to really take that down. Um, you know, like store whole storylines had to come out sequences, wow. you know, in order to get an hour out um, or 50 minutes as it, as it were. Um, sure. And I believe um, like two and three were also long, which is why we broke them up. And two and three are basically episodes two, three, and four, you know? So we, we ended up breaking up without losing story at that point. Um, and then we're a little bit um, better shape um, towards the end after that. Um, and certainly episode six was, or, or I'm sorry, episode seven, <laughs> I keep thinking about it that way, but episode seven was, was very good. And, you know, yeah, I just think, you know, overall we had to figure out and that it was a pacing issue and, and, 
And, you know, sometimes you just arrive at those moments in the editing schedule that you're like, okay, now it's time for us to think about that. You know, whereas <laughs> we were trying to sort of figure out other problems, you know, before that, but Sure. But yes, we did end up long. I think the assembly was maybe nine hours and 30 some odd minutes for the wow. for, for all of it. And then we ended up down to seven and a, and a half or something like that. Did you look at it all at once, all nine hours, like on your first you know, pass? So we didn't do all. We did that on Godless, actually. We had a whole binge day where, you know, Scott and I had gotten all the stuff together. And, you know, when, when we work together, we work in a rolling mix. So we're, we're working with the music editor, the composer is already working and his music is, is dropped in and the sound designer and sound editing and the first mix. So when we're watching it, we're kind of watching it the best way possible, except super long. And I think we we tried to do that on Queens. We ended up just doing the first three because our producer really had to see it and felt like we had problems and needed to get in there. So <laughs> so we broke it up. We saw the first three. That was the last week um, before the pandemic, wow. um, before we, were, we started working from home. And then we did the last three as a picks binge like people had to watch it from home so it wasn't exactly the same feeling because we, we would make a whole day of it where we were in the theater together we'd order food all day you'd come in your pjs or whatever you know and then <laughs> you know and and you'd watch um you'd watch it straight through and we'd get a feeling of how it's playing and and everyone gives their notes you know so it's usually a fun thing we yeah, of course. I mean, being with with your people, being with, you know, the people that you're making the film with is such a difference than seeing it at home. So tell me a little bit about it. Were you guys like kind of freaked out that, you know, all of a sudden, wow, we're all working from home? Well, yeah, I mean, we were freaked out because we didn't know what was going on. And, and you know, it was only a week after um, we had had the first screening where, you know, we invited everyone together. And of course, you're thinking, oh, God, you know, God, we were all together. We were shaking hands and we're, <laughs> you know, things like that. I mean, I've, luckily, you know, nobody, you know, contracted anything. But I think the working together. Now, what was interesting was that because they shot in Berlin and that was the shoot, shoot was from August to Christmas, basically. And because, you know, Scott and I were trying to work together, I was like, oh, is there a way that like we can work live? And, you know, we that's when we started experimenting with Evercast, which was back in October. So we hmm. were already I was like, you know, and I was trying to get him to do it because part of me was like, I don't know, these long stints in New York are getting kind of, I don't know, like, <laughs> like it's too long. So I wanted to see if there would be a way to work together remotely, just out of my own like curiosity. So we decided to try it and Scott was was patient enough to try it and he, oh, and he loved it. So, you know, by the time we were forced, you know, we moved into our own homes with, you know, they set me up in the apartment that I was in we already had a system in place funny enough to work this way and i was freaking out because the week that we moved out of the offices is where when i had to deliver it might have been the first three episodes to netflix 
So I had two things going on. I was moving and I had like cuts due. Like, <laughs> so it was, it was a little, yeah, a little nuts, but you know, in the yeah. end, like once we were doing that, it, it seemed to flow well. And all of a sudden, like I had all this time and it, it worked well for me actually. So you use something you described as a rolling mix on the series. Uh, can you talk about this a little bit and how it affected others uh, down the line in post? A rolling mix is a phrase that people use to describe when you're still editing picture, but you are now incorporating work being done in sound in terms of editing the dialogue tracks, cleaning up those tracks, sound design, um, sound effects, uh, as well as music being updated constantly along with the changes of picture and, and sound and basically working in a finalized mode, in a finishing mode um, throughout the editorial process instead of waiting till picture editorial is locked, finished, done, no more changes, then starting that process at the very end. We tend to take that mix, start it much sooner um, and then keep rolling it over as the cuts um, progress. Uh, and, sure. and we've been doing this for since Godless, I wow. think, this particular team. And that can, that can get pretty complicated as, um, you know, being on a long-term, you know, post-production schedule. Like how many months were you doing this, constantly updating dialogue effects, music, et cetera? The second I turn over an assembly to sound or, um, you know, if Scott's like, oh, yeah, you know, you could send that sequence. It may just be a, a real a reels worth, which is about 20 minutes of a sequence and say, see what see what design they can do with it. Um, uh, see what Carlos can score to that, um, which could be very well in the assembly stage um, for the Queen's Gambit. It was literally. I want to say probably I gave him stuff in October, no, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August. That's like wow. 11 months, basically the entire time. Wow. So, <clears throat> know. so basically, you know, you're working in stems that you're getting, you know, and we got, I think we had stereo stems at one point. And then I think because I was in an LCR environment where, you know, I had, left channel center right you know the sound guys really wanted me to see if i could carry three um three tracks like an lcr um and assign it as such so they knew how someone would hear it in that particular room and actually what was fun about it when we were both when we were all working in the rooms is that we had these great jbl speakers that they could um program to match what they had on the stage so that was kind of fun because you felt like you had a good representation of what they were trying to do on on the mix stage, you know, in right. their own Pro Tools environment. At the same time, uh, what was great about the sound people being on is they were, were mixing, like we would get stereo LTRTs, um, left track, right track, uh, so that when we posted things to picks or you know, someone was just looking at it on the computer, you you got a good sense of the mix in a stereo field. They were hearing like, you know, the work in progress of cleaning up the dialogue of of backgrounds being slowly added in every single time. So by the time we delivered it to Netflix, 
for Studio Cut, it was already a fully realized soundscape and 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 music. Oh, that's great. So that must have made a, a bit of, a bit more work for you. I mean, were you dragging along your original dialogue production tracks with the stems? I mean, how did you, you, you needed to keep those things updated, right? Yes, yes. So what we did is um, we didn't have, the only thing we were carrying is maybe four tracks. I had four designated tracks in the Avid for production audio and you just mute them all, you keep it muted. But the stems were very organized. They were already, you know, we assigned them like <clears throat> five, five, six and down and we just carried it. So, you know, even if I go back to not working with stems, I'm 22 tracks deep anyway. It's just <laughs> full of other little bits, you know? Uh, right. So to me, like it wasn't as cumbersome. It's not as cumbersome if you know, if you kind of know what it is. And I always keep, you know, sync lock on, so I don't really throw it out of sync. And actually it's, it's easy to find when you're out of sync because there's all the time code. Right. Right. But you know, it, that it, you can find. But it creates a lot of sort of like bookkeeping and, and you know, keeping track of versions and passes. For yes. Everyone, sound, picture, uh, I mean, that is me, true. Sound, and your assistants obviously. Music. To, uh, yeah, that is true. I kind of don't think about it because we <laughs> we we're very um, particular with how we name our sequences and how we want the sound team to name their sequences in terms of versions like I have a few. I think uh, I did like um, a rough cut, a timeline Tuesday for Avid. And in the corner, you could see how we named that particular episode. And it's all like numbers, which basically cool. represent the date, the time of day, you know, right. episode number, but, and then version, audio version of that. And so everyone has, we would make Google um, spreadsheets that would track what was the latest cut what Scott and I had done and, you know, to represent that cut, uh, then what uh, stem version was in there um, and what was being turned over. So we had this like working spreadsheet that the assistants would would update and I would update myself when um, to reflect what was actually in the Avid and right. in the timeline. So yes, it does keep a lot of bookkeeping, but I mean, it's nice because people can, if they had a question, they knew where where to go. Like you didn't have to like bother me in real time. You could kind of look at it yourself. Right. right. And uh, it brings up one of the key points about long format, uh, you know, larger scale projects, which is organization is key. Key. Totally key. <laughs> I mean, it's key on all projects, but uh, the bigger they get, the more complex they get. Yes, exactly. And you always have to, I mean, it's sort of the way that we've developed this system is based on nothing ever gets locked. Everything always gets opened up again. So you have to number the versions to, you know, prevent, like don't ever call anything final or lock or anything like that, because that could be changed at any, at any moment, you right. know? So, um, and it doesn't take up a whole lot of space you know, right. on the right. whatever in the in the file name. Hey, if you've made it this far, we appreciate you giving us a thumbs up and subscribing to our channel. And let us know what other kinds of videos you'd like to see in the comments section below. So you talked about the Evercast, I guess, you know, that kind of answered my next question, which was, did you have any uh, purely technical uh, challenges kind of out of the ordinary? Yeah, I mean, I think really dependent on, you know, it was just sort of tutoring 
uh, either our producers uh, to learn how to use a program, um, dealing with their technical issues. But on my end, because um, our vendor allowed us to bring all of the equipment to our house, and it was sort of like we had already had, from editorial's perspective, everything already set up. So I didn't have too many issues. And if I did have an issue, you know, we use Team Viewer and the assistants would plug in and fix whatever needed fixing. But, you know, luckily, you know, I was in a place because they had put me up in Chelsea. I mean, I'm in Manhattan, so the the internet was really good, you know? Nice. Um, so, cause that was a big thing is like, I remember the first time I did it with Scott when Scott left Manhattan, you know, he, he escaped Manhattan and went to Connecticut. <laughs> And, um, and he was working out of his house there. And that was my biggest worry. I was like, okay, I don't know what kind of internet you, you have going on. But he was, yeah. he was able to do it. He found a room and that he got a good signal. And, and the time we spent on Evercast was usually in spurts of maybe 30 minutes to an hour. And then he'd leave me alone and do, go off and do his own thing. So it wasn't like we needed it to work for an eight hour day, for example. Right, right. So let me ask you uh, along those lines, what do you think of the whole remote editing situation? Do you think that that's going to become more prevalent even, you know, post pandemic? You know, Scott and I had a big talk about this towards the end as to how effective we thought it was. And, and I, from a creative standpoint, not talking technically because, you know, technology is always going to change. So there's always going to be a new way to do it or a better way to do it. Um, but I personally thought that I had less distractions. So for me, it allowed me to kind of really focus um, and get a lot of work done. And I was comfortable. I could take a break, like sort of these lifestyle things that right. I wish I could like exercise and stuff like, and eat, eat well. Like I felt like I could do that better working from home. Um, and yeah. Scott loves because he loves writing from home. And so mm -hmm. for him, it's like, oh, great, I can do that. And oh, well, I'll just text you and then we'll hop on. It's so convenient, you know, yeah. in terms of accommodating life. So I think it, I think it is dependent on the people, you know, right. what how they want to accommodate their lives. Um, because I certainly think that I mean, we agreed that a, you know, mixing remotely wasn't great. You know, we ended no, up doing, no. you know, a uh, four mixed stage <laughs> source connect. And wow. we've, we found it imperative that at least Scott, uh, myself, the music editor and our post supervisor, and we also had a dialogue editor. We were in one, um, not one mix stage and our sound designer and, um, and lead mixer was in um they were in topanga they wouldn't you know netflix wouldn't fly them we had to figure out how to mix together and our producer bill horberg was up in upstate new york and he he has pre-existing conditions so he there was no way he was going to share a stage with us so we had to figure it out and i think if there were no pandemic and we had to choose you know scott and i had surmised that maybe what we would do is we would do production and dailies, you know, everything leading up to possibly like a preview or, you know, where you're kind of screening and stuff could be done remotely, whatever we could do it remotely. But towards the end, um, I think 
being there's a value to screening it together to seeing making the last decisions together looking at the same screen certainly being on a mixed stage i mean there's just some things that you know i haven't quite seen the technology replace that experience so yeah mixed stage is tough so you've <laughs> done television you've done some feature work do you prefer one or the other uh i mean it sounds like you were doing like the queen's gambit uh was like a feature on steroids so i mean do you prefer one or the other i think it depends on the project right what is the kind of story you're telling number one and number two it's it is it is about the setup so in a lot of ways and scott liked to think of it this way too that how we did godless how we did queen's gambit was like a feature on steroids so i suppose that i preferred these types of projects where I think creatively we're creating something new um, and it's limited. It's, you know, just this one thing that has to live on its own once we're done with it. I think that's the other thing is the challenge of trying to tell that story that isn't dependent on anything else and won't change. So you have to, you have to make it work with what, what you're doing now, how you're thinking about it now. So um, currently, right. that's what I'm saying. That might change later. But <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, for me now, that, that might be these rare cases of the limited series where, you know, it's just the one time it's a spe like a special event or, you know, maybe that's a feature. I don't I don't know. I mean, I feel like I haven't done enough features to really have a, a major opinion about it. So. So tell me something. Yeah. What's the thing you love most about editing? Oh, solving a puzzle, solving a puzzle, you know, getting into a puzzle, figuring out um, how to take something that was in somebody's crazy head and, and actually turn it into something and have it mean something to other people who sure. were not in that person's crazy head. You know, I think that that is no two editors are going to cut the same footage the same. It's sort of like how people think are, are is expl expressed visually. I mean, that's just fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. What's the thing you least like about editing? Oh, <laughs> a lot of sitting, <laughs> a lot of looking at television. <laughs> I think that's probably what I, what I least because you know hours can go by and you're like, oh, I've been I've been here for three four hours. I haven't moved and. My mind maybe, but oh wow, wow, what's that crick in my neck? Like, you know? oh, don't even start with me. I, yeah. I don't want to start talking about my neck right now. I feel like I'm doing this the whole interview. Um, but you know, I, I agree, and it's kind of like a double-edged sword. I mean, one of the things about getting into your flow and having those hours go by is is such a you know, it's a gift. It's a it's a it's a thing that a lot of people don't get to experience in their work. But right. there's also, you know, sort of like the, you know, the opposite side of that, which is, oh, my God, it's six o'clock and I didn't eat lunch. And, you know, what happened to today? <laughs> so I right. get what you're saying, though. Right. Very cool. Have you encountered any problems or discrimination working as a woman in Hollywood? You know, I have to say. I feel like my success is due to me not encountering those problems because I just I do feel like everyone who has been open to me hiring me as an assistant 
bumping me up to an editor, working with me, giving me my opportunities in the beginning. They were all forward thinking people. Obviously they didn't have an issue with me. And so I've been very blessed um, to work with um, a, a set of people, execs, directors, producers, you know, editors um, who didn't practice that kind of discrimination. So it's it's almost like this is what could happen if that didn't exist. I mean, there are times that I think when, when I'm on shows, if, you know, especially when I was younger, I want to say maybe 10 years ago or so, where if I was one of three editors and, you know, the other two editors were way more established, older male, um, you know, they would get um, deference where I wouldn't get. You know, and a lot of it is because I look 16. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and I understand that, you know, I understand also I was I was also a beginning editor as well, because it's weird. It's it's hard for me to, to know when I feel like I'm being discriminated against because I'm a woman or if I'm being discriminated against because I don't have the experience of some of these other people, you know, because it kind of came at the same time for me. So, right. um you know, that happened, but I mean, I, luckily I'm pretty hard headed, so I kind of don't see it. It goes right over my head and I just, I'm very like tunnel vision, you know, I just know what I want and I know what my job is and I just try to do the best that I can do. And, good for you. Oh. Yeah. That's, that's a, <laughs> that's a good quality to have, especially in our business because, yeah. and as an editor, I mean, we have to just deal with so much, um, subterfuge sometimes yes. and Ego a lot of time and... yeah exactly so so how technically or oriented are you you know so there are some editors that are really into the gear and 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 the technical end of it obviously as an assistant you probably have to be a little more technical but where would you right. rate yourself on a on a scale of one to ten and how do you feel about that so ten being the most technical i'd probably put myself probably at a six I'm not super tech. I'm like technical enough to know how to be self-sufficient. You know, okay. if I don't know something, I and I feel like I will be a little too dependent if I didn't know. I will try to learn it from the assistant, just enough to get by, just enough to do what I need to do with it. Um, I mean, I'm comfortable with with you know computers, and luckily, a lot of these new softwares they kind of rely on the same language. You know, so if right. you know kind of language, you kind of get, okay, that, that little bar means maybe I can click on it. That probably gives me something, you know? Um, so, you know, I wouldn't say I'm overly technical because I just feel like it's hard to keep up, especially when that's not a part of an initial part of your job and someone else's, that's somebody else's job. It's hard to kind of be well-versed in it. So, um, yeah, that's my I get answer. it. I get it. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I'm almost wondering, you know, I ask that question to a lot of people, but, uh, you, you know, like fixing your computer when it goes down or something like that is almost second mm -hmm. nature. It's almost like everybody knows how to do that. And, you know, in my eyes, that's pretty technical. You know what I mean? So no, I think maybe people from your generation kind of look at that as not being that different. technical. It's just it's something you have it's to, just do. What used to do. Yeah. I mean, OK, if you put it that way, I think I. You know, when I was an assistant and I was learning the Mac and I was learning uh, Avid, I mean, it, that was before OS 10. So it was always, I was on OS 9. So, you know, I learned all the 
Oh my God, zapping the PRAM, if anyone remembers what the heck that was. Um, now you know, you're like dating little, yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but I thought that, you know, that stuff was super cool. And I felt like, oh good, now I know what to do when you get that weird, you know, looking icon. <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess that's true. You know, you, you just had to deal with these problems all the time. And so... You know, you're used to the computer not being as smart as you think it should be. Um, <laughs> and stubborn and uh, yes, yes, absolutely. No, zapping PRAM, <laughs> that, that, that like that, that elevates you to like an eight in my book. I mean, forget it. It's like, you're not, a, you're not a six. You're <laughs> well, like, I worked with this wonderful editor, Peter Frank early, early on, and, and he is super technical and for him, you know, I think he might be in his 70s now. No, something like that. But he, at the time when I worked with him, which was maybe in two, it was 2005, he was learning Linux. And I'm like, oh, I, I don't know, man. <laughs> and he just thought it was cool. Like, he liked yeah. it, he liked it, but, but that's how his mind works. And yeah. to me, that's like, okay, that's overboard. That's like- That's a 10. <laughs> that's a 10. That's a 10 for sure. So you edit with the Avid. Uh, now, um, is that the only software you worked with? Have you worked with things like Premiere, Final Cut, uh, Resolve? So I, I, ha I haven't worked on Premiere like the Premiere we know it now. I worked on Premiere back in 1999, 2000. Oh. So I think it's changed completely a, probably. Yeah, by then. that was a different animal. <laughs> totally different, yeah. Um, yeah. But the only other that I worked with other than Avid was was Final Cut Pro 7 because um, at David Fincher's place, they he loved to work at the time with Final Cut Pro 7. This is before they had the Adobe people come over and like show them Premiere. And, and also before Final, Final Cut made a, a major... A major change, right. Change, so yeah, yeah we worked on Final Cut Pro 7 and I had previously worked... I wasn't unfamiliar with it, but... Yeah, I kind of had to remap and rekey everything. That was sure. the only other one that I was on, um, but it's mostly been Media Composer. Do you have any feeling for whether um, any of these n newer nonlinear editors like Premiere are making inroads in Hollywood? Do you think that in the next few years they're gonna they're gonna kind of like have a have a bigger presence? I mean, I feel like Premiere has a big presence now. I just remember. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was interviewed recently by Matt Fury from Avid and he was like, oh, I'm just so glad you're editing on Avid <laughs> and not yeah. Premiere or something. I bet he is. So I, yeah. I mean, obviously, I, I think it has made an impact. Um, and I know, you know, my my nephew who is, is he, he'll be 17. Maybe he's already 17. Oh, boy. Um, he is a big sports editor. Um, he has an Instagram account. He recently had a little... Um, he did something for his high school football uh, thing that got featured on SportsCenter. I had got him an educational version of Avid and he loved that at first. And then, no, oh, all of his friends are cutting on Premiere. And so he started using that and has been using it. So I feel like when you have a generation of editors, filmmakers who are working in a certain thing, they're going to get used to that and be dependent on that like I was on Avid, right? So right. like we were, whatever we came up with. So I think it's it's certainly a presence. 
Yeah, and I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I do think it's a generational thing also. If you were offered a show and they wanted you to cut in premiere, would you jump in and try to learn it? What, do you, what are your feelings about that? I think I would try to jump in and try to learn it because um, with my experience of having to basically relearn Final Cut Pro 7 when I worked on House of Cards, you know, I didn't want that to be the reason why I didn't work on that show. I mean, geez, it's David Fincher, you know? Right. So, um, Absolutely, you know, I yeah. think I would, because that is actually the best way to learn a new program. Cause it's like learning a language. It's, you have exactly. to use it and you have to understand, well, I need to do this. How do I do the thing that's in my head, you know, or what I'm used to doing. And you know, cause otherwise if you just sort of try to learn it when you don't have a project and yeah. you don't know, you don't put it through its through its exercises. Exactly. Yeah. So could you tell me a little bit about your crew on the Queen's Gambit? I mean, how many assistants were you working with? So I had two assistants who both had a lot of experience as visual effects editors, in fact, because I knew that we had all these VFX sequences with the chess pieces on, on the ceiling and, and everything. So um, and because Scott gave me the mandate to keep the crew small, I couldn't just have a VFX editor and then an, and then two assistant editors. So I, I tried to kind of get two strong assistant editors who had been VFX editors. And one of them I had actually worked with before, uh, Charlie Green on Godless. So he was very familiar with the workflow and with what it was going to be like on, on a long project like this cross-boarded. And the other person he um, he brought on, uh, who's the other assistant, is Philip Kimsey. And he had worked with Charlie before on Maniac, which I believe they also did that cross-boarded. So they're very familiar and they were such a great team, the two of them. And then um, after the two of them, uh, our post team, uh, the post-production team was made up of our post-producer, Mick Anaceto, who had worked with us before on Godless, and his team was made up of uh, post-supervisors, Diana DeKylo, and a post-coordinator, which is Anthony LaGrega, and our post-PA, you know, Gifford Elliott. And that was it for the whole, for the whole run of it. Wow. That's a good size crew, but it's still, you know, only two assistants on, you know, on that kind of uh, volume of dailies is still a challenge. Were they working remotely also? Were they in New York remote working remote? Yes. So the, um, everybody was a New York crew, except for me um, and the music editor. I, I can't forget them because, because we also had a music editor who started once um, shooting stopped and we also had our had a sound editor so our sound designer wiley statement put on eric hirsch as our sound editor um to kind of clean up dialogue and to start getting the, the rolling mix going so they were a big part of it because that relieved the picture editorial assistance from sound work music work and yeah they were everybody was in new york even the music editor Tom Kramer and I, uh, I think Tom Kramer and I were the only LA based who were in New York. I know Tom um, well. We worked on several pictures together. Great guy. He is, well, it makes me laugh all the time. He has such a great <laughs> dry, dry sense of humor. It's a unwieldy thing. Um, but luckily I believe like this time, you know, the way that Scott was shooting was very deliberate. And so usually the average amount of dailies we got we, anywhere between one and three hours. So it didn't get crazy. 
like us. Yeah, that's not did. too bad. That's not too it's bad. It's not too bad. Totally doable. And with the two of these assistants, it was really easy to kind of get through it. I had a really nice daily workflow with them where um, the beginning of the day, they would get in at six because they were shooting in Berlin and they were, right. so because they were ahead, the dailies were ready, you know, sooner. And they would prep the dailies. They would prep these sequences that I like, you know, these um, string outs um, that are pull sequences. And um, they would have it all ready by lunchtime. So, or before lunch. So we'd have nice. lunch and we'd all sit together in the room pre-pandemic, of course. And uh, I had uh, already bought my JVC 4K projector. And so we would watch <laughs> dailies on this 12 foot screen together and look through Sharon, our script supervisor's notes. And I would say, oh, okay. We would go through all the dailies. I would do my selects with them. We'd talk about it. And um, I talk about how these scenes would be cut or how I would approach the scenes. And then in fact, I would divide, I would, you know, I had a list of everything that was shot every day and I would divide up the work. I'd be like, why don't you try assembling the scene? Why don't you try assembling this scene? And then I'll do these, you know, and we did that, you know, the whole time. So it wow. was, it was, a lot of, it was very creative oh, and they felt. That's so great. That. Yeah, no, I mean, that's so great to give your assistance that opportunity again, uh, I've talked about it with a lot of people. We get so siloed now in the digital world, but you sound, I mean, this show and, you know, maybe just the way you were, you know, sort of brought up in, in the business, you sound very old school. I mean, like, you know, having the music uh, editor come on, you, you know, right after production, having a sound crew come on. I mean, that kind of stopped for a while. Uh, you know, right. I don't know. There was a period of time where they were just cutting budgets so much that, you know, the sound people wouldn't come on to like right before the mix and, and things like that. Right. So I, I think Netflix has a lot of respect for post and, and, and a really good understanding of, of post. And, uh, and I, maybe that's part of it. I'm sure Scott had had some input, but that that's great. It's, it's a nice way of working. Yeah. It's interesting because I mean, I had started working like that when I worked on luck with, with Michael Mann and he, he infamously makes the mixing room an editing room, right? So, um, so that kind of workflow having having music editors and sound editors on hand during dailies was like something brand new to me um, at that time. That was 2011. But I, I mean, he'd been working like that. I'm assuming a lot of you know feature people work like that, but that doesn't ha that rarely happens in television because we don't have the budget for it, right? right. And I think by the time I worked with Scott, he, after we did the pilot, he had this idea. I was like, you know, I really want to work it this way. Cause I, he couldn't stand hearing temp, temp music or temp, even temp sound effects. He couldn't stand it. Cause he's like, well, yeah. you know, I don't, I want to hear what, what it's going to sound like. I don't want to hear this thing. And then all of a sudden a week before we were finished, we're creating, we're recreating the whole thing. Right. So, Right. Wiley was very instrumental in, in sort of setting this up with Scott or convincing him that we're, we should do it this way. And, and Godless was the first time we did that. And, and because I had been well-versed in working that way, working uh, with stems in my timeline and comfortable with that um, and really keeping track, you know, cut to cut to gut um, with those and turning things over and what it means that um, we were able to do it that way. But I don't know if every team can do that. 
you know, it takes everybody in in the system to yeah. want to the system and to understand the system. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, with, with a lot of the editors I worked with, you just had to learn how to do that. I mean, because, right. you know, once you put in a temp mix or part of a temp mix, they don't want to hear, you know, anything else anymore. You know, it's like, right. why, where, right. where did all the effects go? Oh, well, I'm not right. dragging those along anymore. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you know, I, it, it's almost like you, you don't have an excuse now, except for the fact, well, I mean, do there's you no want time now, or do you want it later? You know? Right. So that's the other thing is like, because Scott was so dedicated to this kind of workflow, he was willing to be patient and say, oh, okay, I know we've just turned this over to sound and I know they need a minute with it. So I'm not gonna keep, you know, screwing around in this area until right. they've, they've done something with it. It's nice to work with people who understand that process because again, I've worked with people who, I don't care if you've turned it over to sound, we're gonna continue to make changes here. And I'm just like, okay, right. well. There goes that. Well, that's their problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So, Michelle, what kind of advice would you have for people who aspire to become editors or assistant editors in long form scripted television and uh, and feature films? Hmm. I, I would say if if they know that they want to go um, into that field and specifically into either features or, or television scripted, then you have to start there at the bottom of those ladders. It's difficult if you go from another type of genre, say reality or documentary, and then, and then hop over. Because right. I think even as specific as scripted features or scripted series, premium cable versus, versus network cable versus, you know, it's like these are skinny ladders that right. there are certain people that work in, in, in each of those categories sure. that know each other. And because on, on your way up and, and working more in them, like you'll run along the same people and those people help you up and, and right. move you on to another. So it's, it's sort of the best thing to do is to really kind of know where you want to end up. You know, you have to begin with the end in mind. Yeah, absolutely. That's really good advice because um, it's all about where you start to build your network. I mean, if you start to build your network in the commercial business or in promos, those are the people you're gonna know. Uh, and if, you, if you're gonna wanna go to television or, or features a long form of any kind, it's gonna be harder to make the jump. Hey, Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time uh, for talking to us today. Uh, best of luck with the Queen's Gambit. Uh, I have a good feeling that you're gonna be in the, uh, in the running for uh, nominations this year. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I, I am grateful. Oh yeah, it was our pleasure. Take care. Thank you.